Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. These programs are just one of several free services we provide to disseminate information about training for mountain sports. If you like what you hear and want more, please check out our website, uphillathlete.com, where you'll find many articles and our extensive video library on all aspects of training for and accomplishing a variety of mountain goals. You'll also find our forum where you can ask questions of our experts and the community at large. Our email is coach at uphillathlete.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We've been very pleased and, of course, gratified that our podcasts are being received so enthusiastically. We've had requests to enable a way for listeners to have a conversation about episodes. We certainly welcome this idea and want to encourage those of you who do want to do that to do so on our forum so that the whole Uphill Athlete community can join in and benefit from this exchange. To do so, please start a new thread on the forum using the title of the podcast under the most appropriate category. Thanks for being part of this community. Welcome to another episode of the Uphill Athlete Podcast. I'm your host, Scott Johnston, co-founder of Uphill Athlete. And today I have the distinct pleasure of having um, a different type of a guest on our program than we normally have. Today I have Army Captain Vince Pikowski. Um, Vince is a um, currently serving as a captain in the 4th Infantry Division. He's um, also a Ranger certified and was an intelligence officer in the 75th Ranger Regiment. Um, and most pertinent to the discussion that he and I are going to be having today is the fact that he won the best ranger competition in 2021. And I, I won't do this complete justice and we'll probably get into much more detail about it in um, a few minutes. But for those of you that aren't familiar with this, um, this competition, it is a, an event that lasts um, you know, over 60 hours and involves tests of you know, fitness um, and a lot of you know, high um, skill requirements used in mark, marksmanship. And so it kind of mimics some of the demands of the, or does mimic, excuse me, very closely, a lot of the demands that, that uh, the normal uphill athlete uh, cohort would be interested in. So I think that um, Vince has some really interesting uh, insights to share with us, especially since one of the things he did was a study on the results of this competition that I think will be really enlightening for folks to hear about. So welcome, Vince. Thanks for taking the time to meet with me. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Pretty excited. Cool. Well, um, I hope I haven't bungled any of that introduction too badly and you know, people, <laughs> I've kind of gotten the point across a little bit, but why don't we start off with, um, you know, the, this is obviously a, this best ranger competition is highly endurance oriented. Um, so what was your background uh, before we talk about the, that competition itself, why don't you give the listeners some idea of what your, your own personal athletic background has been like? Absolutely. So I, I grew up in, in a mid-sized town in Wisconsin, um, to two parents who were pretty active all the time. Um, my earliest memories are of my dad dropping us off at a park uh, with other kids while him and his running group would just be doing laps around the park and coming to check in on us every two to three miles, making 
making sure we were still okay at the park. And he got uh, pretty big into ultra marathons. He got pretty big into marathoning. My mother was uh, into marathoning, got big into cycling. Um, so I just grew up around a, an incredibly active family that would spend, you know, Saturdays going out and, and biking to, you know, an ice cream shop 30 miles away just to do it, um, grabbing ice cream and, and biking home. And then as I progressed into high school, I got more and more interested into running. And my dad's constant um, advice was, you know, hey, slow makes strong, strong makes smooth, smooth makes fast. And it was like just drilled into my head from, from a young age. Hey, you don't need to do anything, you know, sexy in this off season. You just need to, to put consistency together um, and start building a framework from which, you know, you can work in the future. Um, Saw some success in high school and, and ended up running at the, the division one level for cross country and track and field at, at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. Um, and so that, that kind of brought me in, into college. And when, when I was, you know, looking at colleges and, and selecting schools, you know, I, I had an interest in, in serving my country. There is always, you know, growing up around teams and, and growing up around athletics, it was the idea that, you know, you, you can step into an organization that requires everyone working together well and synchronized and, and you have an accountability system there with you all the time and, and you get to serve your country. And so it just really intrigued me. So I, I applied for ROTC scholarships in, in college and, and then was fortunate enough to, to receive one and, and commission as an officer coming out um, of the, of university. So uh, while my background was, was pretty athletically focused um, the whole time, it, you know, it, it translated pretty well in, into the profession that I ended up ended up choosing as well. So, sounds like your dad had some sage words for you back then. Do you think does he need a job as a coach for uphill athlete? <laughs> we were always looking for people like him. <laughs> sounds like he really gets this, uh, you know, the basic concepts that we work from. So that's great. He got you started on the right foot. Yeah, he's he's constantly. I remember him having you know three four hour long phone conversations with his running buddies where they're just rehashing, you know, are we doing this right? How's the periodization looking? You know, are, do you think we're set up well for this 50 miler? How are you feeling? How can we adjust? And I mean, they made it more of a science than they even knew. You know, these are guys that started running in their thirties as, as a hobby. And then, you know, my dad ran 250 in the marathon, um, just under eight hours for 50 miles. So, um, you know, he, he did pretty well for the fact that he started later on in life compared to, to a lot of people. So certainly did. So how did you transition? I mean, did you, did you have the Rangers as a, a focus goal right off the bat or did that occur more gradually? Absolutely. So, so in the military, right, you have these little nests. Um, you, you have the, the large conventional force, um, which does all, all of the meat and potatoes work that's necessary um, in the military. And then I went to my uh, introductory uh, courses for the military and, and heard about the, the 75th Ranger Regiment. And it's, it's a place that is highly revered within our military. Um, and it's a place that once you go, you understand that the people around you uh, don't only demand excellence, but they live excellence every day. From your leadership to, to the brand new guy stepping into the unit, everyone's hungry to, to accomplish something big um, and to be as good at their job, whatever it is. If, if you're the infantry men on the line, then you, know, you become very proficient at shooting. 
But if you're the guy that's supposed to be very good at computers, you become very, very good at computers, right? And, and you go down your specialization because you understand that all those specializations create a well-oiled machine that, that can operate at a high level. So when I heard about this organization and I, I heard they were conducting tryouts to come assess for, for their, their uh, organization, uh, to me, it was a no-brainer to, to try and go um, and, and see what was possible. So a goal hanging out there in the, you know, kind of the a carrot dangled out there for you, like most people who are high achievers, and that's a big stimulus to wanting to achieve excellence and, and knowing that you're, when you obviously do make this selection, you're part of a really elite group. I think that's um, kind of the motivation that, that drives a lot of us to do the things we do. So that's, so once you, how long did it take you to prepare for and what did you do to prepare for the selection? I understand, you know, I know from the little bit of work that I've done with special operations type folks that it's an incredibly grueling selection process and you obviously knew this going in. How did you prepare? Yeah, so, so there were really two barriers to entry um, joining the range regiment, right? The first one is ranger school. Um, and that's, if, if you've ever watched, you know, the surviving the cut documentaries that came out on discovery channel a long time ago, that's kind of what they showed, right? The 62 days of, of sleep deprivation, food deprivation, uh, long days of just moving through the woods and, and conducting operations. Right. And, and really the only way you can prepare for that is, is through the training I had kind of already been doing. Um, and that's uh, a high volume of, of running, a high volume of, of hiking, walking, rucking, um, to just prepare your body for the, the deprivation it, it was about to go through and, and to make sure everything was strong enough to kind of endure it over time. So nothing really had to change there, but, but there's still the unknown of when you go to school and all of a sudden you find yourself, you know, you've gone through a week where you have six cumulative hours of sleep and you're only eating two meals a day, um, and your body is feeling super weak, and, and your mind's starting to drift, you, you look all over, and, and it doesn't matter how fit or how competent you know, the person was on day one. By day 58, every Ranger student looks the same. They're all tired. They're all grumpy. You know, no one really wants to work together anymore. Everyone's you know, kind of sick of what they've been doing. People are forgetting the little things now. Um, and so it was seeing that degradation over time that, that kind of cued me into the idea of, you know, how does this, this uh, you know, degrading ability over time relate to how we, you know, started this. And then the, the second gate to entry is, is the Ranger Assessment and Selection Program, um, which for officers and, and our senior NCOs is a, a three-week selection process that's super team-driven and team-oriented. So, you, not to give away, you know, the, uh, the nuts and bolts of the selection for people that are going through it, but it, it's highly team focused. It's a lot of physical events that test you in a variety of ways, not only long foot movements, but explosive drills, uh, rope climbing, movements with kits, uh, but just about everything you're doing, you're doing as a team and you're being assessed in your ability to not only contribute to the team, but, but to, uh, be a good team player to lead when you're asked to lead and, and to follow, you know, when, when it's your, your turn to follow. So. And I would assume that even there must be a fairly high attrition rate for people going through even the Ranger school. Is that the case? 
Yeah, so Ranger School right now, uh, from the individuals that come on day one to the individuals that graduate, I believe it's around 50, uh, 50% will make it through the full 62 days. And then this uh, three-week assessment, what's, is, there must be also some attrition that goes on during that. Yeah, so there is attrition there. there you know, it's probably an 80% pass rate. It's a much higher uh, pass rate because there's a vetting process that goes on just to show up to, to the selection itself. Oh, so okay. you've already applied with you know, a packet saying this is who I am. You've, you've written statements about why you want to join the range regiment. You have you know, letters of recommendation and, and your evaluations from the past. So, so there's a pre-vetting program that, that goes on to, to try and establish that once you come, it, it becomes more of a validation of, of who you are on paper rather than them trying to figure out if you're right, the right fit. They're just trying to see, okay, this person that applied on paper is the same person that we see once we apply some stress and put them in a team-oriented environment. We've already gone through something that sounds incredibly stressful, <laughs> the 62 days with no sleep or very little sleep that I think would wreck most of us. But a lot of our ultra runners, I'm sure, can relate to the you know, multi-day events with you know, no sleep. So, um, so then before we, I want you to tell us more about this Best Ranger event, but what drove, first of all, obviously you're a high achiever, so that can see what drove you to want to take part in this Best Ranger. When did, how did that all come to light for you? And did you find out about it? And how long did it take you to prepare for it and that sort of thing? Yeah. So actually while I was in Ranger school was the first time I kind of found out about the Best Ranger competition. So if you're in school and you have to recycle a phase because you didn't, you know, do something well enough and, and you have to retry one of the, the three phases of the school, uh, there's this looming thing over everybody's head that you don't want to get stuck there for the best ranger competition. Because if you get stuck there for the best ranger competition, you basically become labor for the army for six weeks. You dig the post holes that need to be dug. You prepare the obstacle courses. You you paint all the stuff that needs to be painted, mark all the courses. Um, and so you don't want that job, right? And I was in the class that had I recycled, I would have been, you know, sitting for Best Ranger. So coming out of school, the Best Ranger competition happened around that same weekend. Um, and so I went and watched it for the first time. Um, and immediately, like, the, com the competitive side in me was, was turned on. Um, it was... It was watching, you know, guys apply all the different fundamentals of being a soldier. And no one task in the Best Ranger competition is extremely difficult to learn. But it's the culmination of all those little tasks and becoming an expert in your craft and, and all these little things that, that really uh, excited me. Because at, at the end of the day, regardless of your job in the Army, I believe we're all soldiers first. And and we should all have these core competencies and, and abilities to perform certain tasks as well as we can, because ultimately it, it might mean the difference between mission success and, and mission failure at some point. So, and so when was that that you watched? You were a spectator. It was 2018. So I, I went and spectated in 2018, and then actually in 2019 I got the, my first opportunity to compete. Um, and my partner and I, we, we trained diligently. Uh, he came from an Olympic lifting background, so we had some work to do to kind of convert him in, into an endurance athlete. 
but we did a pretty good job of, of converting him into an endurance athlete. And he was super strong, fast. He, he was durable. Um, unfortunately, on day one of the competition, it was a super humid day in Georgia. And he ended up uh, becoming a heat casualty with a, a core temp of 107.8. Um, and we couldn't, couldn't continue the competition. That sounds really dangerous. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So um, one of the things you, you just commented on the fact that you can take um, a strength and power speed athlete and turn them into an endurance athlete is something that, you know, I've seen over and over. It's, it, it's a lot easier than you know, going the other way. You, you pretty much can't go the other way. <laughs> you couldn't take someone who's you know, more of an endurance athlete. You're not going to turn them into an Olympic lifter with much success at all. Now, and, and what I found too is, is when you take those individuals with a strength background and you start introducing them to the world of endurance, they have all the supplemental strength that they need to stay healthy through the training. They don't, they don't break down. They don't degrade. They, they don't run into the little, uh, the little niggles that, that other people are running into quite as often because they have this requisite of strength that is just holding their, their body together in a, a, a much more robust way. That certainly jives with my my findings too. I mean, I think that one of the I think I've said this in one of the books that the um, the endurance athlete uses strength as just one of the tools in the toolbox, and it's primarily there to, to we just want them to be able to perform better and stay healthy, rather than getting strong for strength's sake. And I think that's mm-hmm. the difference between you know the the approach that an endurance athlete takes with their strength training. <clears throat> excuse me. And the approach that, let's say, a strength athlete will take is you know, there for them. They just they're going to get strong. They just want to get stronger and stronger and stronger because that's the object of the game. Whereas for an endurance athlete, you know, there's a certain level of strength beyond which it's not effective anymore. It doesn't really enhance either your um, durability or your performance. But you're right. These guys that come in with a a good strength background or when and men and women, I've seen it. From, all areas coming into working with uphill athlete, they tend to be have to be very robust, be able to handle a pretty high workload. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So then you let's talk a little bit about. Uh, I mean, so you you had this um, failure then on was that 2018? You said or 19? 19. 19. 19. Yeah. And then um, did you try again before this success in 2021? No, so um, then actually uh, a year about removed from that competition, I, I was running on some trails, bombing down a uh, uh, downhill section of trail, um, and I shattered my ankle. I hit a root just right. I heard a, a gunshot go off, and I instantly was, was incapacitated. I was about two and a half miles down the trail, though, so I, I had no choice. It, it was starting to get dark. I, I tried to hobble back to my car. Um, and by the time I got to the, uh, the hospital, it, it was pretty clear I was going to need reconstructive surgery on my ankle to, to piece it back together. So they put a rod, nine screws, uh, and a wire um, to kind of hold it all together again. Um, and then I, I went into you know, rehabilitation and, and watched the guys train up in 2020 um, and kind of uh, tried to be in the gym when they were in the gym just for the motivation of, of watching those guys train. Um, but it turned out to be COVID everything shut down and, and they didn't host a, a competition in 2020. So 
Well, that must have been motivating too. I mean, I know that you know, sometimes people, a setback can be a great motivator. And it sounds like that's a pretty significant setback that you, back that you suffered. Um, so tell us more about the event itself and yeah. what it entails. You don't have to go into, I'm sure there are some things you can't even talk about, but maybe give us a general idea. Yeah, so the competition, kind of as you alluded to earlier, is, is a three-day-long competition, um, and it runs semi-continuous. Uh, it is split up into about 30 separate events, so that it doesn't matter if you, you know, cross the, the final finish line first. It's parceled into all of these smaller events in between. For example, the first day starts with an eight-mile run and then goes into about a three-and-a-half-minute-long mi- three obstacle course. Uh, and then just continues from there, uh, events as far as swimming, uh, marksmanship, uh, your ability with demolitions or indirect fire systems, uh, your ability to shoot a sniper rifle or long gun, uh, weighted long movements. Uh, the first night is a 22-mile road march, and the second night is an eight-hour-long land navigation uh, or orienteering-style um, event with your, your rucksack on. So the competition continually modulates between high-intensity, short-duration spurts um, and longer, more endurance-based events. And it's really testing three sides of of the soldier-athlete model, right? It's testing your uh, physical competence, your tactical competence, so your your ability to shoot, move, and communicate, and then also your technical competence. So there's some mountaineering events, uh, such as Prusik climbing and rock climbing in there, or your ability to to call for indirect fire under stress, uh, you know, testing your your technical competence. And it's testing those three continuously. So you don't know what event is next. You don't know... um, you know, kind of what the actual event is until you, you come up on the event, they brief you, here's what you got to do, and, and you begin to execute the event. Um, and then with that, and, and the other thing that makes the event, I think, most challenging is that you're in a nutritionally restricted environment. So at the start of the competition, they gave us uh, seven or eight oral rehydration packets um, of our choosing. Uh, so whatever brand you wanted to choose from, you could choose, but you only got eight of them. And you were only given seven MREs, meals ready to eat, the, the meals that come in a bag uh, to be heated up, right? So you're restricted on your, your calories that you can have, and, and you're restricted on your rehydration supplements. The only thing you're not restricted on is water. You can f- fill up on water whenever you see fit. Uh, but that makes it even more difficult. Um, you know, I, I was trying to think of analogies before we talked, but imagine you're running a 50-mile mountain race, right, from start to finish. But within that 50-mile mountain race, there's, you know, two 400-meter segments, uh, a vertical kilometer segment, and maybe, you know, a mile-long trail segment that are all worth as much to determine the winner as the whole 50-mile race. Well, you've just completely changed the dynamic of that 50-mile race, right? No longer is it going to be who can sustain 50 miles the greatest, but now perhaps the person that's going to win the race is is the person that can win those two 400-meter segments, the VK and the mile, and they don't have to win the 50-mile segment to, you know, win the race overall. Um, Obviously, that, that concept doesn't really exist in the trail running world as a perfect parody, but 
um, you can see how it would change the dynamic of how you have to kind of prepare, um, but also execute the event itself over time. Yeah, that, that has a couple of, an, um, there's some similarities, let's say, you know, in, in, as you, I'm sure you're aware of, like in um, the, grand, the grand tours on bicycle racing, where they'll have, you know, the, the first person across this line gets so many extra bonus seconds or minutes, that sort of thing. They do the same thing in um, uh, cross-country ski racing, where when it's a pack-style start, where they'll have a line in the snow and the first person to get to that line, you know, even though the group is skiing generally as a pack, there'll be a massive sprint to get to this line first because then mm -hmm. you get bonus uh, seconds for that. So I think that those are the two that I can think of offhand where there's this mix of you know, the endurance and then the, the speed and power that comes with those things. Um, yeah. And so we're talking over those three days for the best runner competition, you know, averaging about 70 to 80 miles. Obviously it changes, you know, from year to year. Um, but kind of like you alluded to it in, you know, the Tour de France, the, the guy that wins the green Jersey never wins, you know, the GC hunt, right? It's just impossible. So the same thing happens in the best ranger competition. Where are you going to hemorrhage your loss in order to try and gain the most benefit? And the best ranger competition offers a pretty unique uh, opportunity in that it weights all of the individual events differently. So for example, the eight mile run might be worth a weight of one. So if 52 teams start and it's only worth one, if you win it, you get the 52 points times one. But a three gun event might be worth six. So you would get 52 times six, uh, 312 points, you know, for that win. So you're, you're constantly trying to pick your spots and, and pick, you know, where should I push? Where should I kind of rest? Where, should, where is it worthwhile to, you know, go to the well in this event? And then can I replicate that? When's the next, you know, big event that I would have to push that hard on? Uh, so it's it's a it becomes a tactician's game within the competition. And are you? You have to make those decisions on the fly because you don't even know what these events are until you show up at for that event, correct? Or do you have some ideas beforehand that oh, you know we're really great marksmen and so we should try to win this event and um, to get those points. We'll have some idea. So the week leading up to the competition, they do brief you generally what the events are. But let's say it's a marksmanship event. Uh, for instance, the, one of the three gun ranges uh, last year, they didn't show us the range until the day of. So they just explained, you know, you'll shoot pistol first, shotgun, rifle, and then finish with pistol again. But until you got there, you didn't know where the target tree sat. You didn't know how far, you know, the shots were going to be. You knew the round counts that they had given you for each weapon, but you, you don't know, like, the specifics. Or the uh, night road march on day one was an unknown distance road march. So they said, hey, there's, you know, we're going to end day one with a, a night road march, unknown distance. Um, and it turned into a 22-mile slog um, in the middle of the night. Sounds fun. I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Um, so now let's jump into like your experience with this competition. Obviously, you had a really good partner, sounds like, and so we should probably, you might want to give a little shout out to him. Absolutely. Um, yes. But then take us through you know, your experience in that. 
Yeah, so in 2019, when I competed, uh, an individual I knew from college, Alistair Keyes, uh, competed as well for the uh, 173rd Airborne Division or uh, Brigade. Um, and he had taken second place in the competition that year. Um, and I was ecstatic for him. He comes from a collegiate wrestling background um, and is really the type of guy that, that can just grind every day. I mean, I was, I come from an endurance background and, and I was kind of templating a lot of our training and, and our buildup. And I was absolutely tired, absolutely fatigued from the, the volume of work we were putting in. Every day we'd come to work and I'd ask him, how are you feeling? And he'd say, I feel like a hundred bucks. Even, even if he didn't, he would just overtly lie to me um, and fake his way through it. And he was durable and, and he was willing to, to constantly put in the work. And then the other thing about Al is that he has an incredible grip strength from years of wrestling. Um, and the competition really lends itself to a lot of uh, heavy carries, a lot of uh, obstacle proficiency. Pistol shooting relies on your grip a lot. So he, he was pretty well-rounded um, in what we needed to be successful. His, his proficiency over obstacles anytime we had it was second to none. Um, and he had a, an ability to kind of rest when other people had to work harder. If, if we were climbing a rope, his heart rate would come down 10 beats a minute where my heart rate would spike on the rope, you know? And, and that ability kept kept us at, at a pretty even parity as, as we were working together. Because when I was working, he was resting. And when I was resting, he was working. Um, so it became a, a good relationship. But we were over actually in Afghanistan. Um, and there wasn't a whole lot going on at the time. Uh, things had started drawing down. Uh, uh, we had become you know, more restricted in, in what we were able to do over there. And we knew the best ranger competition was coming up. And I was contacted by some of my leadership to, you know, hey, do you want to try this again? Um, and I said, you know, I absolutely do want to try it again, but I'm only going to go to the competition if, if you know, I can have Al as my partner. Um, and a, f a few phone calls later, we were, we were on planes back to Fort Benning, Georgia to, to begin the train up. Um, so that, that was a, a super you know, special time in our lives. We were actually just texting last night about, you know, as, as the army does, it's now split us up and we miss having that training partner that, you know, was so durable and, and willing to, to put in, put in consistent volume. Yeah. That partnership is, uh, you know, yeah, it's a special thing to, and to have endured that together and to spend all those hours training together and then competing together like that. It's, wonderful thing that bonds a lot of us with long lifelong friends um, so then what when does this competition take place so the competition uh takes place in april and most units that are uh serious about doing well uh really begin training up you know november december uh you'll start you know physically preparing but then in january you go all in um because of the amount of time you need at the range with, with the technical competency things, the, the volume of things you need to learn and be proficient at to do well at the competition, it just takes time. And then with the physical requirement of the competition, it becomes an, an all-day job, you know, preparing for the competition. So you kind of get put on special duty orders, we call them, and, and you get told like, hey, your job for the next three or four months is prepare for this competition. Um, and luckily, 
being at the 75th Range Regiment and having a history of, of, you know, doing pretty well in the competition, we had an organization built around us that, that supported that train up. We had awesome strength coaches that, you know, taught me a lot about, Hey, a, a gym session doesn't need to be two hours. Like your run is, you can see huge returns in 40 minutes of super concentrated focused work, you know, uh, you know, the, the uh, workouts that they had given us to kind of uh, test the different systems of, you know, uh, modularity between running to an O course, throwing on the ruck and seeing how your body starts to feel as it's switching through these different modes of, of performance. Um, and we, we had the backside support that went and set up the ranges for us to, to make sure we were able to shoot, um, you know, and have the, the ammunition necessary to to practice diligently. So it very much kind of gets modeled like a, a professional athlete's uh, life for, for three or four months. Yeah. It sounds exactly like professional athletes I've worked with. So that's a great opportunity. So then the day arrives and um, walk us through a little bit of, you know, where there are some ups I and mean, there obviously must've been some ups and downs and um, the, probably the downs were the most memorable, I would imagine. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, we, I think we had done a, a pretty good job of preparing in 2021. Uh, Al and I went in with the idea and, and the concept that's now prevailing in, in the way I train guys for the competition or just in general is that everybody can come to day one, um, being a stud, right? You can be the CrossFit athlete stud. You can be the running stud. You can be whatever kind of stud you want, but everyone's going to show up to the competition that shows up to the competition because one, you have to be in the army Two, you have to be ranger qualified. So now we're talking about 1% of the army. And then from that 1% of the army, they only select 52 teams, right? So you, you apply, you get selected. All right, you're in. You're one of 52 teams to represent the army that year and, and your units. Everyone's going to come to the competition having trained in some capacity, and they're going to come in pretty good shape. But the crux of the competition is to, like any endurance competition, is to degrade the least over time, right? If, you know, there might be people that, that could beat us on an obstacle course day one on a three-minute high interval session. But can they beat us on day two when they've already got 50 miles on their legs? So in order to prepare for that, we, we just started stacking volume. Uh, in our biggest week, we hit 100 miles in five days with then, I think, 15 additional miles on the weekend. So 115 over, over seven days in, in a peak week. Um, and that was between running and rucking. So although, you know, by mileage, a lot of runners are, are you know, doing that week in and week out. Some of those sessions were two or three hour long ruck marches, only accumulating, you know, eight to 12 miles at a time. So the time on feet became much greater and, and we were putting in about 20 hours a week of just physical volume. Um, so when we got to the competition, we felt confident in our ability um, to not degrade as much as anybody else. Um, and we relied on that. So uh, day one, the first run, uh, we came in, in fourth place um, and, and kind of allowed three teams ahead of us to, to run away from us. Um, and we were, we were fine with that because we realized, all right, they're expending extra energy 
for these additional points that aren't worth as much. But we know event two, this obstacle course, you know, we've got a better chance of doing well and it's weighted higher. So let's, you know, relax the run. Let's, let's hit the, uh, the obstacle course. And, and we just came up with a plan for every event on, on how we would execute, in what order. If it was marksmanship, who would shoot what, in what order. So you, you come up to a bunch of steel targetry. Al would take the first shot down the center. And when that center target would fall, I knew I had everything left of the target and he had everything right of the target, right? And, and it becomes very much a rehearsed drill event to event. Um, and, and we stuck to our game plan. We had a, a rough night, night one, uh, when we went into some of the nighttime shooting events, uh, where we didn't really shoot well. And then on night two, uh, for nightland navigation, we, uh, we had covered about 24 miles, uh, with our packs and weapons, uh, on the land navigation course and in some pretty undulating terrain. Um, and I remember both Al and I looked at each other and I think, almost everybody can relate to this at some point in a long race, but we looked at each other and we're like, never again. Like this, <laughs> this is absolutely terrible. Let's just end it here. Let's, let's like finish this competition as strong as we can. Let's go for the win, but like, man, never again. And then of course, you know, the, the end of the competition comes and, and things start really going our way. And, and we start stacking up uh, event wins um, back to back. And uh, yeah, we're fortunate enough to, to walk away with the victory. Um, and then of course, you know, you wake up the next day and, and right away, Al's calling me. He's like, dude, we got, we got to try this again. We have to, you know, we, it's, it's the, it's the, the mid midnight terrors in, in an ultra endurance event that I think play the hardest on the mind. Um, and, and we definitely felt that. Well, the, the thing that you initially contacted me about, I think I'd like to jump into that conversation Absolutely. next if we can. Um, now that I think people have a pretty darn good understanding of what this all entailed and how you, you managed to train for it and whatnot. But I'm intrigued by the fact that you then took a look at the results from this competition to try to figure out who what kind of background the athletes had in order who degraded the least over time, because that's, as you said, and it's, um, I think intuitively obvious, everyone's going to degrade during this, this thing and the degradation in the high skill, high intensity components of it is going to show up dramatically because one of the first things that goes away with fatigue is fine motor control. Um, and then of course, and obviously that's really important in any kind of high skill activity like shooting, um, but also let's say technical climbing or decision-making processes and things like that begin to deteriorate pretty rapidly. So you did this study that I want you to explain to, to people um, where you looked at this degradation over the course of the event. So why don't you explain how you, first of all, what caused you to want to do that? That do that um, study, and then secondly, what was the um, okay, what, what were you looking at in, in terms of analyzing that data? Yeah, so what kind of got me dialed in on the idea of, of physical capacity and then specifically aerobic capacity and degradation of fine motor, motor skills was on, on the final day of, of the best ranger competition, there was a three gun range that moved from 
grenade launcher to a 50 caliber machine gun um, to an anti-tank uh, grenade missile launcher, right? And we did not do well for our standards, right? We got done and I was like, that took us a long time to go through. And we walk up to the scores table and, and we had gone last through that range. Um, and I was like, what does that put us? And he's like, uh, you're second at this range. And I was like, how can that be? We just, we just took a, such a long time executing these tasks. Why is it that, you know, we're in second place? And I was basing it off of, you know, performances I knew we had had fresh uh, in training when, when we replicated some of the things we thought we were going to encounter in the competition. Um, so I kind of use that as baseline, but I was like, how can it be that we are still in a position to take second at this, even though we had what in my mind at the time was an atrocious run. So after the competition uh, kind of sat with it for a while and it, it kept mulling at me. And so I got hands on our finisher data for all the events and, and contacted some of the other, the other uh, guys I knew that have competed in the past. And I was like, Hey, can I have your guys's finisher data? from years past. Um, and what I did was, uh, you know, I, I come from a, an accounting and finance background. So I've always joked around saying like Excel is my best friend. Um, but all, all I did is take the data from those events um, and look at specific events, right? So the first run is pretty indicative of aerobic uh, capacity. Although no one's really trying to win it, people fall into a place of where they believe, you know, they are compared to the field. So your top runners are, are going to go win that, that first run or, or be, you know, well up in contention. And your guys who know, hey, we're, we're not a running team, they're, they're going to save themselves as much as they can on those events. So we based it first on that and then the night road march and, and took those two groups as how are people performing in these two groups kind of took an average of those two to identify where they uh, stand in their aerobic ability. Then what I did is looked at their ability to shoot from one day to, you know, day three or the first day to day two um, and looked at how did you guys place after 10 miles of movement versus how did you place when we were at 40 or 50 miles of movement? And what we found is that um, those that, that are in a higher aerobic ability degrade less over time in their ability to shoot, um, in their ability to you know, conduct a, a basic marksmanship qualification or to, to run a three-gun range. And of course, there are you know, some external variables that, that you can't control. It's, it's by no means a perfect study. But it, it was pretty clear that, you know, although the best aerobic team might not start out as the best shooters, they will consistently shoot at the level that, that you brought them in, in at. Where teams with a, a lower aerobic capacity may have been the best shooters on day one. But by the time we got to day two, they were making so many mistakes at the range or, or they were missing so many targets at the range that they were no longer, you know, in the top 5% of that event but now they were in the bottom half of the event. Um, and so then that got me thinking, you know, the competition is always put out to be, Hey, it's a third physical. It's a third technical. It's a third tactical. Well, that changes the, 
the dynamic of how you train for it, right? Because if you acknowledge the fact that you will degrade over time, if you're not as aerobically uh, proficient, then the competition is no longer a third physical, a third technical, and a third tactical. It becomes 50% physical, 25% technical, and 25% tactical, right? Because if, if you can train to not degrade over time, you will overcome teams that, that come in, you know, as better shooters, as, as better tacticians who can tie knots and, and do demolition calculation faster, fresh, but they no longer have the capacity to do so once they fatigued uh, so dramatically because their aerobic base isn't there to, to sustain their efforts long-term. The, one of the things that really intrigues me about this study, first of all, is that you did it and, and you have this data set that you sort of a captive audience that you could actually collect real world empirical data from, because this is a theory that, you know, this is an idea that I know Steve and I, when we wrote our first book, were, we knew this worked. We knew that people's, you know, they're these higher skilled, higher um, cognitive function, higher intensity um, activities were all better performed by people who were less fatigued. And I, I think I even, I even wrote, uh, and there's a little ditty in the first book. I, some, I, I grabbed this quote, which I think is credited to Vince Lombardi, which is fatigue makes cowards of us all. And I mean, I think it's so true that, you know, we, because we become intimidated by challenges that might otherwise, or we become poor at uh, adapting to the challenges or meeting the challenges that would arise that we would otherwise be able to have handled when we were not fatigued. Um, and it's something that Steve and I addressed in a, we were part of a, um, we were asked to speak at a uh, conference on winter warfare with special operations folks and actually where you're based now in Colorado Springs, um, about four years ago, <clears throat> dealing with um, the NATO special operations groups that were represented there. And it was one of the, the things that jumped out at me was the Norwegians, they, they knew this like the back of their hand. They understood this part really well. Like they, you know, they come from a country that's famous for endur training endurance athletes. And they had taken those same concepts and applied them to their special operations groups. Whereas some of the other special operations groups that we talked to or, or some of the trainers and, and leaders from those groups, they didn't understand that concept nearly as well because they hadn't lived it like you, know, you have and, and uh, these other these Norwegian guys, especially. They were like, of course, they all had skiing backgrounds, so it was e easy for me to relate to them. But um, so the question that arises then for me from this you know, this this satisfies me because it confirms some you know this this idea that I've held for a long time. But how much does your job look like this competition? Is this competition um, a good test of a ranger's ability? You know, in in, in the real world. So I mean, that's an excellent question. I think. You know, in, in some ways, it is an excellent test of, of you know, the, the real world stress that can apply. Of course, you can never replicate the, the stress of a, of a combat scenario. Um, but the military tries to get as close as it can through food, sleep deprivation, and, and physical exertion uh, to kind of replicate what the body and, and mind go through in those, in those circumstances. So, it, so as far as that, I think, you know, it's as close as you can get. Um, 
in a, in a three-day, you know, competition-style format. And I think it does test the important functions of, of what being a soldier is, right? You, you have to move you have to move distance, you have to execute a task, you have to continue to move, and you have to continue to execute a task. Um, and so in that way, I think it does replicate. But I think, you know, and, and what you might be leading to is that, is that we've had a shift in our, you know, special operations and our military completely over the last, you know, 60, 70 years. That, that's pretty uh, drastic. Um, and that we've got to enjoy because we've had a s- significant advantage over the adversaries we faced, right? I, I was just looking last night, the average uh, body weight of a soldier during World War II was about 145 pounds. The average body weight of a soldier today is about 185 pounds of, of a male soldier, right? What we've, we've seen, you know, 40 additional pounds added to our soldiers. And if you talk to non-commissioned officers that have been in the army for a long time, I, I think they'll echo the fact that they've watched the the army evolve into a more strength oriented force. And we've enjoyed that because, uh, you know, right now, or for example, two years ago in Afghanistan, you could pick up a ranger unit. You could fly them by helicopter to the target. You could drop them off relatively close to the target. Um, because we have such technological advantage over the adversary, um, that we're not worried about that that helicopter, you know, being shot down or, or degraded. And you can basically drop them at the front, the front steps of the enemy where the soldier's only job now is to kick in that door, go into that house, execute a mission, retrieve what they need to retrieve. And then, and then return to, you know, the helicopter exfil and and fly back. Because we've enjoyed that level of, of advantage, we've allowed ourselves to kind of go away as a force from the ability to move. Um, and we've started to focus a lot on strength and power and, and uh, you know, building up your, your squat and deadlift. And, and while it's super important to be strong as a soldier, it's also important to be well-rounded. Um, and that's what I think the best ranger competition really gets right, is that while you're asked to, you know, move 22, 22 miles under, you know, a 50 pound pack one night, which is very much an endurance event. The next event might be, you know, a a heavy carry of some sort, a 200, 300 pound object that you and your partner are trying to move together, you know, for, for a certain amount of distance that requires strength and and the ability to be well-rounded and then, and then come out of that with the the grip fatigue and, and the fatigue in your traps from carrying a pack and be able to put a pistol in your hand and deliver effective rounds. So I think what it gets at is, is, you know, what the soldier was meant to be, especially the, the infantry army soldier. And that is a, an individual who is able to, to move, shoot and communicate at, for long periods at a time over distance um, and consistently give the, the same results over and over. And now after your success at this, I'm sure it garnered some accolades and attention. And, uh, and I think you told me earlier that you were coaching some guys. Um, you, are these people that you have been assigned to coach? Are they guys that came to you because of your success? How does the, how has that worked out for you? Yeah, so it's about half and half right now. So uh, here with the 4th Infantry Division, I've been assigned to coach some individuals. Um, 
and uh, we're, we're having a lot of a lot of fun coaching some guys that have never really s- s- put their foot in the endurance world before. And then I also have a few athletes that that reached out and, and wanted advice. And you know, how would you structure a plan to you know attack the competition? Um, and my advice is pretty consistently the same thing for soldiers, right? It doesn't have to be anything sexy. You just have to start getting on your feet more and more often and include the peripheral strength that you need in order to stay healthy, um, and endure the, um, the competition, but there is a max level of strength necessary to perform there that like, if, if you're above that max level of strength, you just have additional strength that is not necessary for the competition, but you can't go to the competition with a max amount of aerobic base, right? There, there's no such thing as too much yeah, there, aerobic capacity. Yeah. <laughs> there, there is not. There, there's no ceiling to which you'll get that you'll be like, oh, you, you know, it'll be a walk in the park. Uh, you'll be okay. You, you can't see that. So with the guys, what, what we've been doing is just, you know, long, slow movements, time on feet. We're trying to build from, you know, six hours a week of, of moving on the feet to, to 17 or 18 or 19 hours on the feet um, moving in a week. Uh, but a lot of that is done in, you know, very slow controlled fashions. And I, I constantly try and beat into the guys, uh, that I don't care how fast you're moving, right? I, you could run 12 minute pace today. It, it would not make a difference to me as, as long as what you're feeling is easy and, and recovery. Um, but that's, that's a total mind shift for, an individual in the military, right? You, you join the military, especially if you want to compete in the competition. It's because, you know, you're, you're a go-getter. You want to do the hard thing. You want to, you know, you want to move fast. You want to be powerful. You want to, you know, uh, perform to a high level every day. So it's kind of reframing the idea of, you know, although, you know, the ranger standard is five miles, eight minute mile pace, right? For every ranger, regardless of their job. Um, I don't need you running eight minute mile pace every day. In fact, if you, you can only run 37, 30 right now for five miles, I don't want you to be anywhere close to eight minute miles today because then you're in a, in a, in a sub sub tempo effort. Um, and if you do that day over day, you're going to degrade, you're not going to improve. So it's, it's trying to shift the mentality of, of soldiers that, Hey, sometimes less and easier is more productive than hard and difficult day after day. Yeah, I understand that being a difficult mindset to overcome. What sort of pushback or resistance have you encountered with them? I mean, obviously, these guys that are coming to you for advice, they must obviously they think you have a, a good idea or two. And are they the are you are they giving some pushback or or other, where do you see pushback on this? So, I mean, it, it's from a variety of lenses, right? Some of the guys come from, for instance, a, a, a CrossFit background. And I have no qualms or quarrels with, you know, if, if that's what you love to do and, and it's going to keep you, you know, healthy and fit and active, then by all means, go do it. But, you know, for the competition, and, and I've heard you allude to this uh, on your podcast and in your book, right? There's, there's a correlation between VO2 um, that's not, and performance that's not very predictive of success, right? But if we look at someone's, you know, lactic threshold or their aerobic capacity, there is more of a correlation there uh, between those, you know, uh, uh, high level 
uh, athlete and success there. So it's trying to get them to buy off on this idea that, hey, if we do this VO2 work every day, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful over, you know, hours of the competition. Um, but if we do hours of, of slow, monotonous work every day and we just try and keep it consistent, you're going to see improvement. I think, you know, a, a, a big pushback that comes when you're not familiar with endurance uh, athletics is, is the feeling you feel as you enter, you know, peak weeks right before, you know, you take your little cutback week to kind of reset. You feel sluggish and slow and, and you can't quite perform the way, you know, you used to perform and you're really waiting to, to get that, that second wind as you enter, you know, your next cycle. Um, and that's super frustrating for some guys who are used to, you know, wow, at the start of this train up, I could back squat 450 pounds and I can't back squat 450 pounds right now. And it's getting them to understand that, you know, right now in the training, you don't need to back squat 450 pounds. But once we start tapering off this, this voluminous effort, I think what you're going to find pretty quickly is when you go to squat, it'll still be there. The, the neuromuscular familiarity that you've created for that system isn't just going to leave you overnight. Um, and you'll still be able to perform at a high level uh, when you're required to and when you're fresh and tapered and, and actually asked to perform. Yeah, that gets to a fundamental concept of training that I think isn't, I think it's well understood by people who use it, but it's not universally understood or used, is that that idea of capacity training versus utilization training, where when you're training to build a capacity, your short-term performance will degrade during that, um, while you're building capacity. And because... And whereas when you're training, when you're using utilization type training, you're utilizing the capacity that you currently have on that day for that type of training. And so we can think of capacity training is to help you perform better at some time out in the future with expected lesser results between now and then. So it's like you, you, in your build up to a, Training, running a marathon or running some long distance race, um, you probably shouldn't expect PRs and whatnot during that build up period, that capacity building. And so capacity training is this you know, looking into the future, whereas utilization training is like, let's maximize those capacities you have today and it will enhance your short term performance utilization training, but often at the, um, the result will be a decrease in capacity. So we have to balance the utilization and, and capacity training. And that's a trick. I think that's one of the, the arts of coaching is, is being able to balance that. But it sounds like you guys balanced it well, and I'm sure you're balancing it pretty darn well with the guys you're coaching now. Um, has, so yeah. has your success caused, excuse me, but don't go ahead and, and interject what you had. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the big things I've, I've tried doing with the guys uh, that I think we're seeing some success with is repeatable uh, workouts. Um, you know, regardless of what we're doing during the week to, to build volume and, and such, we're going to have a couple touch points each week that are familiar to the guys. Um, and, and they might not be every week we're repeating the same thing, but we're kind of repeating everything in a three-week cycle. Uh, so for instance, we have a, a five mile run, five mile ruck, five mile run event that we're doing just about every three weeks. And the guys, 
you know, the, the first time they did it, they went out super hard their first five mile run and they paid for it on the five mile ruck and, and the second five mile run. So the second time it's, it's now, Hey, go out and run that first five miles as fast as you did that second five miles and see how the, the relationship with the workout changes now that you're running, you know, negative splits throughout the workout instead of dying to, you know, uh, a certain capacity. Um, and, and the guys are, are really uh, linking up with, with that idea. And then we have a short little obstacle course that we've run once a week. It takes the guys about four or five minutes to, to get through. So it's a, a short little hit. It's about a, a total of a quarter mile of running with, you know, a dozen obstacles in it. Um, but that way the guys can see the first time they did it, they were like at eight, nine minutes. Now they're at, you know, I've got results right in front of me, you know, the three and a half to four minute mark. And some of that is just familiarity with, you know, the obstacles and the sequences and, and how your body feels. But part of that too is, you know, the first time I didn't give them any instruction. I just said, I want you to hit the obstacle course as hard as you can. And what did you see? Like, guy took off right away, jacked up his heart rate, hit the first, you know, set of walls, and now he can't recover. And just the second time was, hey, I want you to run this, but run it as if you're at a 90% effort. And right away, we saw a two-minute drop in performance, just from saving, saving some effort for the obstacles or just mentally being in a different space of I'm not working that hard right now. I'm in, you know, my float tempo phase right now. And we've seen success with that. So it's, a, it's you know, teaching the mindset of, of how to be competitive while still have that, that tactician side of you for each individual event so that you can maximize your performance in, in that little thing. And, and guys have been seeing the success there. So I, I think they're excited about the trajectory we're headed. Yeah, that's always really rewarding as a coach and as an athlete to see you know, these performance gains, especially during, you know, when you can see performance gains during a capacity building period, that's always really exciting because you know when you start to taper a little bit or when you start doing a little more utilization training, the results are going to increase dramatically. You're going to see a big jump in performance. So that's cool. Where are you going to take this next? I mean, it sounds like you should be promoted to be the sort of the professional trainer for <laughs> the best ranger guys. Um, is that part of your future or does the Army have other plans for you? Uh, I'll, I'll continue to, to coach guys for the best ranger competition as, as long as guys want to talk about it. And, you know, I, I'm very much of the belief that, you know, the, the, and this is kind of counterintuitive to the rest of the, the coaching industry, but you know, my job as a coach right now is to give guys the tools to go out and be successful, you know, on their own or, or to go out back to their units and make their units, you know, fitter and, and better, and to really bring to the, the forefront this idea that, you know, yes, in, endurance training is, is slow. Yes, it's monotonous. Um, but if you build consistency, you can, you can build something, you know, really special. Um, you know, people always joke around in the Army that our senior leaders, you know, value runners more than, you know, they do deadlifters or you know, you run a fast two mile and, and, you know, leadership's heads turn to, wow, that guy, you know, just went under 10 minutes. What does he do? 
But I think that happens because people recognize the level of consistency and monotony necessary to, you know, conduct endurance athletics at, at, you know, a higher level. Um, and so I, I'm open to, you know, if whoever wants to talk about it, I, I'm an open book about it. I, I don't believe in, you know, there's a lot of secrecy around the competitions and guys want to hold their, their training plans, you know, close hold and, and they want to, you know, kind of obscure it from the rest of the world. But in my mind, that's doing no good for the force as a whole. And, and the more we can share it and can, you know, get out this idea that, you know, this slow monotonous train is not only going to benefit you aerobically, but it's going to benefit your technical and tactical skills and your ability to maintain those skills long-term in a degraded environment. I think that's, you know, that's the key to, to building a successful force. Well, your philosophy aligns exactly with that of uphill athlete, which is to try to disseminate this information, you know, as, as openly you know, and as freely as possible. And I, I've said often, I didn't invent any of this stuff that's in our books or on our website. You know, I've kind of tried to collate it into, you know, a usable body of knowledge that we can apply to these, um, you know, different unconventional type sports that most of the folks are interested in. Um, but nothing is new here. And, you know, I learned what I learned through the openness of other coaches and their willingness to share what they'd found success with and what hadn't worked well for them. And then, of course, through my many, many years of trial and error and failing and trying to figure things out, why didn't that work? And, um, and I think that, you know, I think it's a wonderful thing that you're doing in terms of being willing to share. And I'm not going to give out your email or anything. So well, um, because I'm sure you would be inundated with requests at this point, but it's, um, it's cool that you've, you've got this, that sort of uh, ethic that you want to share this. I think that's a wonderful thing to have. And it's, I, it's, it's more rewarding, I think, than holding your cards close to your chest um, and having, trying to build up uh, some sort of mystique about, you know, oh, I've got the secret. And I mean, anybody who knows anything about endurance training knows it ain't rocket science. Um, I mean, it's much more difficult to train somebody for speed and power than it is to train somebody for endurance. It's a much harder challenge as a coach. <clears throat> so I don't think we as endurance coaches can put ourselves on any kind of pedestal. <laughs> um, well, Vince, I want to be respectful of your time. I've kept you on for a little longer than an hour now. And what's um, any parting words of wisdom or anything we haven't covered yet that, that you'd like to, to touch on? I wouldn't say I have any, you know, profound words of, words of wisdom to, to impart to anybody. But um, for sure, if it, especially if you're a young, you know, uh, military athlete, and you're motivated to, you know, go seek some of these hard selections, I, I would recommend 100% to do it. And even if you don't think, you know, you're going to get selected or, or you're going to get picked up, like it's, it's better to try and know than to not try and not know. Um, so, uh, you know, the, the basis are, are all over and kind of like you alluded to, we invented nothing of this. You know, uh, when my partner and I were training up for the competition, I was reading and rereading uphill athlete, um, you know, the, the pages in there, so some other training books I had and just trying to be a sponge for, you know, the knowledge that already exists out there um, and, and get as much of it as you can and, and, and test it out and, 
be consistent and, and be willing to, you know, endure two or three training blocks of one type of training before you make a decision, you know, one, one way or another, because it, it's not built overnight, but, but it will come with, with consistency. Yeah, I think there's, there's certainly no um, better teacher than experience and being, you know, being curious and being that sponge um, and being a student of, of the sport, you're, you know, this is, you need to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Otherwise it's just, especially because in endurance training, as we've pointed out in this conversation, a lot of it's counterintuitive. Like you would think you need to train at your endurance limit every day. Well, we both know, and many people know very well that that's a quick recipe for disaster. So I think that, you know, understanding the principles is, is a really key component. And, and clearly you, you do have that. Um, and, I can tell you must be a great coach. Um, so these, those guys that are working with you, if they listen to this, I think you're, you're pretty lucky to have a guy like Vince helping you out. Thank you. Um, well, thanks again. And um, maybe we can do this again some other time. Are you, Oh, before I leave you though, are you planning to go back to another best ranger? Uh, maybe in the future. Uh, they've imposed a rule that you can only do it three times. Uh, in your career. So I've, I've, you know, done two attempts uh, with one, uh, my partner being a heat casualty and, and one, you know, winning the competition. Um, and the competition also just requires so much time and, and devotion to do it well, um, that I wanted to give my, my wife a little time off from, you know, the, the nights of me tying knots at the dinner table or dry firing my pistol in the living room while we're watching Netflix. Um, so, so she can, she can relax a little bit and, and yeah, not, not have to stress out about my stress. That's a pretty smart move. <laughs> Domestic tranquility is a really important component. When having familial support when you're training for some big objective like this is so critical that, yeah, it takes, a, it takes a lot. It takes a team to do this and, you know, you really need support from those that are close to you to, to pull it off. Absolutely. And I'll, I'll never forget during the competition because I had verbally rehearsed everything so much she was coming over to me during the competition and like whispering me my verbal cues for certain events and it was like thank you so much because my mind is not working right now in those little cues but giving her some time off so she can recover too and, and maybe we'll go back again in a, in a few years and give it another run yeah she definitely probably needs that time off too well again this has been wonderful chatting with you i really appreciate your taking the time and sharing this knowledge with us i i think there's ton of gems in what we've just talked about and you know, the information you've conveyed that are applicable obviously directly to the tactical world but also to the more traditional uh, uphill athlete type folks that we that we have coming to us and are interested in what we do so thanks for sharing that Vince. Thank, thank you so much it's been an honor Scott. You're really welcome thank you bye. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about what we do, please go to our website, uphillathlete.com.